um, finally sucked it up and bought a new box of dry erase markers. So, and, and here they come. Uh, some of you have been uh, joining some of us in uh, using this Read Through the Bible Guide. Um, for those of you who uh, are not aware, we have these little uh, tiny mini pamphlets out on the, uh, on the information table that give you a plan for reading through the whole Bible in a year. Uh, some of you at this point uh, are so far behind you think you're not going to be able to. So uh, let me just say, first of all, uh, it is not too late. In a month or so it may be, but it is not too late now. It is especially not too late if you don't decide that what you have to do is sit down and, and at one clip catch yourself up completely. Myself, I was sick most of the first week and a half of this, of this year, so I'm still catching up myself. Uh, but uh, the, the guide gives you all the different uh, passages you need to read each week, each day. Uh, and uh, if I, yes, uh, that you get a psalm. Uh, or a series of psalms every Sunday to kind of break it up. So right now, today is the 16th, and we are up to uh, uh, the, that's October, let's try that again. 16th, uh, the psalms for today are 8 through 11, and uh, after a portion of Genesis, actually it jumped over to Job for a while, varying things up that way as well. So uh, it is not, all is not lost, I encourage you to stick with that if you started and if you were thinking of starting, uh, you still have time, so go ahead and do that. So last week, we had the privilege of having with us Rabbi Ron Shulman from uh, Chizikamuna, right up the street. And uh, we, by the way, videotaped that, uh, and I think we're going to have that up on the members-only section of the website. Uh, so uh, when, when we have that up, we'll let you know. But we have, uh, one of the things that I thought was, was, was very helpful about uh, Rabbi Shulman's uh, talk with us last week was that he talked about some of the reasons why Israel would have left Egypt with all the loot they left with, right? Um, one of them was simply what? Compensation, right? I mean, 400 years of slavery, you probably owed something for all that labor. Uh, but what was the other reason that he mentioned that it would be useful uh, for Israel to have all of this gold and silver as they departed Egypt and headed off for the Promised Land. Yes, Kendall. Yeah, exactly. Now, a, a lot of this, and we're going to see this in a couple of weeks, actually, uh, as Joe talks about the tabernacle, um, uh, a lot of these materials were used to build the tabernacle and the instruments for worship but a lot of it also had to do with interacting, as Kendall said, with this complex desert economy that Israel was going to encounter. Um, this, uh, you, you remember, I'm sure, uh, from all those hours you spend lovingly gazing at maps, that this is Sinai, right? Here is Egypt. We usually think of Egypt as sort of a square country because that's how it shows up on our maps. But, but really, this is the Nile, and this is the Nile Delta. I guess I should do that in blue, huh? How you like that? That's good, see? The word for Egypt in Hebrew, by the way, is Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means the narrow place because basically Egypt is a narrow place. I mean, again, you look at it 
on a map today, and it looks like a square country. But basically, apart from the Nile and its delta, the rest of it is, is, uh, is desert. Not much else you can do with it. Here is Arabia. Uh, and then the promised land is way up here. And that's where the Israelites are going to be going. Now, they would have come from somewhere around here. Those would have been the, uh, the, the cities that they were building uh, in that uh, sort of northeastern portion of the delta. And to get from here to there, they needed somehow to get either through Sinai or above Sinai. And as we're going to see today in the passage, actually God specifically says, I'm not going to send you this way. That would have been the most natural way. It was also the most heavily fortified way. Uh, and God uh, decided to send them a different way. Uh, and so today when we get the story of the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, the Yam Suf, that may be the Red Sea, which is right here, but probably is more likely going to be one of the sort of network of little lakes there were around here. Right now this is basically the Suez Canal. But at the time of the Exodus, the Suez Canal was not even a glimmer in the eye of uh, some Egyptian. So um, there, there were all these little lakes, some of them uh, bitter, some of them fresh. And, and this may well have been one of them. Another route, possible route that takes them sort of across here. You've got little land bridges. Either way, the point is the Israelites are going to get from here out to that way eventually. And so... Uh, in order to do that, in order to get from here to there and to survive, all of them in the middle, uh, somehow all these people are going to need things like food, water, security, and stuff. And they are interacting with this, as, as Rabbi Shulman said, this complex desert economy. They're also interacting with not just economics, but with uh, people who don't like the idea of other people traipsing through their land, as we're going to see. So... The, the way that, that our, our passage, our, our uh, Torah portion is structured this morning is, is really brilliant. Uh, we have a, a, a portion, B'Shalach, and, and, and again, if you're, if you're new, uh, we are going through the uh, Torah, going through the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And uh, right now we are in Exodus, starting in chapter 13. And in, uh, what, what we find out is that in chapter 13... The Israelites, starting in 17, are getting ready to go. So Moses takes the bones of Joseph with him. They leave Sukkot. They head out. They camp at Atom in the end of the desert. They've got the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night to guide them and to guard them. And so then, the beginning of chapter 14, Yahweh says to Moses, All right, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahirot, near Migdol in the sea. It's probably going to be somewhere around maybe here. And they're going to camp uh, by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. And so Pharaoh, the idea is that God is setting a trap for Pharaoh, right? You may have seen this before in, like, the whole first half of the book of Genesis, where God seems like he see, keeps setting these traps for Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, is going to think, oh, they're wandering around in the desert, and uh, they're confused, so God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to pursue them, but God says, I will gain glory for myself 
through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians are going to know that I'm Yahweh. Right? So the Israelites did exactly that. King of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. They said, here was a great source of free labor. Maybe we shouldn't have let them go. So they chase after them in the chariot. And then in the chariots, and as Pharaoh approaches, in verse 10, the Israelites look up, and there are the Egyptians marching after them. They're terrified, of course. They cry out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, what, there weren't enough graves in Egypt? You had to take us out here to kill us? Come on. Uh, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Now, that may be sort of creative memories, not to slander anybody who does scrapbooking, but... Um, my guess is that the initial response to Moses was not, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians, when he said that he was going to release the people, was it? I mean, when they faced uh, persecution from the Egyptians, then, then some of them uh, grumbled. But my guess is that many of them had a fairly enthusiastic attitude toward the idea that they might be you know, redeemed from 400 years of slavery. No, it would have been better for, the, for us to serve the Egyptians, they said, than to die in the desert. Well, Moses says, settle down, stand firm. You're going to see the deliverance that Yahweh will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then you get the great classic scene where Charlton Heston raises his staff and the waters part. The nation of Israel walks through in dry ground. Pharaoh and his armies are cast into the sea. And then in chapter 15, you have this lovely song. This one of the earliest examples, probably, of Hebrew poetry that we have here in the Bible. You have this song celebrating the fact that God has done exactly that. Right? I will sing to Yahweh, for he's highly exalted. The horse and his rider, he is hurled into the sea. The Yahweh is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him which is kind of a far cry from it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and serve the Egyptians as their slaves, right? Well, as a result of all this, then, the Israelites are wandering for a few days, traveling through the desert, and they haven't found any water. They end up at Marah. They couldn't drink the water because it's bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, what are we going to drink? Moses cried out to Yahweh. Yahweh showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Yahweh made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, look, if you listen carefully to the voice of Yahweh your God, if you do what's right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I'm not going to bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh who heals you. This is the plot device known as foreshadowing, right? Because if you've read ahead, you know that not everybody there hearing that is going to end up not being sick. So then they came to Elam, so that where there's 12 springs and 70 palm trees that camped there near the water. So here you have, in, in, the, in the first story, so to speak, in, in chapter 13, verse 17, up to, through 1521, we have Israel saved from Egypt. Right? And then in 1522 to 1527, we have Israel saved 
from thirst. What do you think comes next? Saved from hunger. Yeah, all of chapter 16 is the story of Israel being saved from hunger. Now, this is the classic story of the manna. Israel is hungry. God says, I'm going to provide for you. He provides quail at night and manna in the morning. And the deal with the manna is that it's something that the people could gather. They were able to gather it six days. It would not last overnight. Guess what? Somebody had to try that out. Find out, yes, God was serious when he said you can't keep it overnight, except when you gather it on Friday, because Saturday you're not supposed to go out and gather manna because it's not going to be there. Guess what? Some people went to see if God was really serious about saying that he wasn't going to provide any on Saturday. Sure enough, it wasn't there. Now, the interesting thing about this, and and some people may have have read some uh, scientific explanations of the manna. Has anybody... Heard about any explanations as to what this manna stuff was? Or are you all just ignorant and uncurious? Okay, that's one of you, yes? Tim. Uh huh. Yeah, it could be one possibility. Anybody heard any others? There's a, uh, there is a particular louse, not the kind that would show up on your head, but there is a, a breed of louse or lice that uh, uh, will basically uh, take juice out of the tamarisk tree and will produce something that sort of resembles what is being described here uh, in Exodus as manna, something that could be gathered, something that the, the natives use to, uh, they could basically make bread out of it. Uh, something that, in fact, does not keep very well, that uh, is easily perishable. But what's miraculous about this manna thing is not so much that God provides this for the people, because there are all sorts of ways that people survive living in deserts. I mean, you go out to Arizona, there's millions of them. But <clears throat> what's miraculous about this is that this shows up every day. Right? This This secretion of this louse on the tamarisk tree is is a harvest that you can have once a year and some years you don't even get it but here god's providing this every day or at least six days a week and so you know this this thing that that, uh, rabbi shulman talked to to us about again is important to recognize that god is providing uh, that, that god is providing a way for his people to be somewhat self-sustaining, right? They've been given resources. They have gold and silver, monetized commodities, if uh, you're an economist, that they're able to then use in order to purchase things that they need in this complex desert economy. But that's not the only way that God is providing for his people, is it? In fact, it might be better to point out not so much that God, that, that Israel is saved from Egypt, but that God saves Israel from Egypt. God saves Israel from thirst. God saves Israel from hunger. Because who's the main character of the Old Testament? It's not Jesus. God. 
Yeah, I mean, really, the Old Testament, sometimes you say, oh, yeah, the Old Testament's about the history of Israel, or, yeah, the, the, the Torah is all about Moses. No, it's about God. God is the main character. God is the protagonist. God is the one driving this whole story. No? You all with me? There's a rabbi from the second century, Rabbi Simeon ben Yohai, talked about this manna. His disciples asked him, how come the Israel... The, the manna, did, manna didn't come for Israel just once a year, you know, because that was they, they knew about uh, these secretions of the louse and the tamarisk tree, and they knew that that came once a year. How come? How come this wasn't just provided once a year? Rabbi Simeon says, "Let me tell you a story about this king who had a son, and when the king provided him with sustenance once a year, the son visited his father only once a year." When the father began to provide him with his sustenance daily, the son had to call on his father every day. And so it was with Israel. If an Israelite had, say, four or five children, he'd worry, saying, perhaps the manna will not come down tomorrow, and all my children will die of hunger. And so, because the manna was coming down daily, the Israelites were compelled to direct their hearts to their father in heaven every day. Another reason for daily manna was that they were able to eat it while it was still warm because the rabbis were nothing if not practical like that. But the point is that, yes, every day Israel is reminded of just who is sustaining them, just who is taking care of them, who is providing for them. And keep that in the back of your mind as we go through and we see the different ways that, that the nation is going to be rebelling, is going to be complaining, is going to be grumbling. Think about that scene with the golden calf happening after just that morning. They would have gathered this miraculous provision of their daily bread. So after chapter 16 in the manna, we have once again God saving his people from thirst. Seventeen, chapter, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. God saves His people from thirst again. And then in chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, the rest of chapter 17, we have God saving His people from another enemy. In this case, the Amalekites. It's almost like somebody put some thought into this when he sat down and wrote it. The Amalekites, one of those tribes, one of those participants in that complex desert economy that was not amused by the idea of the Israelites coming through, stood up to Israel. They came, they attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, his aide, his lieutenant, come take some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites tomorrow. I'm going to stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites just as Moses had ordered. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. So as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But come the second half, he lowered his hands and the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. 
Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, just like you see in the icon on the front of your bulletin, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And that's the way that Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with his sword. So Yahweh said to Moses, write this down on a scroll, because I want you to remember this. And make sure Joshua hears it, because I'm going to completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it Yahweh is my banner. And he said, for my hands were lifted up to the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. God saves his people from their enemies. He saves them from thirst, saves them from hunger, again from thirst, again from their enemies. The one acting, the one doing the work, the one who is driving this whole story is God. Throughout the history of the church, this story has been seen as a precursor, something foreshadowing, perhaps, the sacrament of communion that we're going to celebrate today. The idea of God providing our daily bread. It's interesting in the New Testament when Jesus says, teaching his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That word in the Greek, unfortunately, isn't one that shows up anywhere else. So we're not quite sure if he meant give us our bread for today or give us our bread for tomorrow. But the idea is give us what we need when we need it. Give us what we need just in time. Certainly that's what God did with his people in the wilderness. He provided the bread they needed in time. He provided the water they needed in time. He provided deliverance from their enemies that they needed in his time. In a very real sense, when we pray, give us our daily bread, we're echoing what the prayers of God's people in their better moments were. And when we take this bread and this wine together, we're remembering the one who taught us to pray and give us this day our daily bread. And the one who feeds us with this bread that always satisfies, who gives us this drink from which we'll never thirst again. See, we're part of this big story that God has been working on for some time. It's important for us, I think, to remember, even as we deal with the problems we deal with, whether we find ourselves in need, whether we find ourselves oppressed, whether we find ourselves threatened, or whether we find ourselves joyful, whether we find ourselves experiencing plenty, we need to remember God is the one who provides all of this for us, after all. And he's the one who calls us to be daily in relationship with him, daily calling upon him. He's the one that doesn't want us to take something from him once a year or once a week and then go about our business. 
This is, after all, the Lord of the universe who has a claim on us. Because if it weren't for his salvation, however much we we might like to candy coat the reality, we would be enslaved. He is the one who delivers. He delivered his people. He delivers us. Because that is what he does. That is who he is. So, in a moment, we're going to take communion. When we do, I invite you to come forward, take the elements and bring them back to your seat. We'll take of them together. The red is wine and the white is grape juice. The bread is unleavened. Will you join me in that prayer that Jesus taught us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. And we'll also join together as we do in reading the Nicene Creed. Please stand, please. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.